I'm Ron Algar-Watt, and this is More Bits. This is the first one of these I've done alone. Uh, the subject, as you will see, is something that's a bit personal to me in a way that I don't think a lot of people can specifically relate to. Hopefully it's something that you can generally relate to. Otherwise, why would you be listening? Uh, one quick note about the sound quality. I live in the flight path of SeaTac Airport. Typically, I try to filter out the airplane noise, but I don't want to lose my train of thought, so that hopefully will not be too distracting. Um, most of you who have ever listened to me talk know that uh, I can be a little stiff, that uh, having a conversation with someone, I, I loosen up a little bit. But reading on my own uh, is, is a little rough. I do have uh, handwritten notes here that I'm working from. Hopefully they will not be too distracting either. And I will try to be as off the cuff as I possibly can, bearing in mind that I do not have a single person in front of me. Uh, and I'm just, uh, I'm just winging it, basically. So, again, bear with me. And now that I've apologized for a full minute, let's, uh, let's begin. A year ago today, as I record this, a man named Adam Yauch died. Some of you probably know this. For those of you who don't, he was one of three grown men who called themselves the Beastie Boys. More than any other creative force in my life, this band or group or whatever, utterly changed, informed, and influenced almost every part of my life. It's probably a bit ridiculous that some guys who entered the collective consciousness on stage with a giant hydraulic penis would be the biggest, single greatest artistic touchstone in my life, but there you are. When we lost Yauk last May, we also lost the Beastie Boys. I know that's a selfish way to see it, but that's how I see death. I see the ways it impacts me personally. It's selfish and kind of awful, but well, I think we all see it that way, frankly. I wish I was sad for the Yauk family, but well, that's what you're supposed to say. What I thought was, I've lost them. I have to go on without them. I mean, that's not exactly right. I have, according to iTunes, hundreds of their songs. I dare not look at the play count on some of those songs. I'm not like those comics fans who think my old favorite books no longer count because some big change undid them. Yauka's gone. The Beastie Boys are gone. And yet, they're not. Alright, I'm rambling a bit here. Sorry. I know not everyone is a fan of their music, and I'm not sure I've met anyone who's quite as into them as I am. But I wanted to use this opportunity to talk about inspiration and loss, about carrying on after something that had a key role in making you the person you are today goes out of your life. A lot of us have those. Certainly those of us who make things. There's always that thing for us, the thing that showed you the way or opened your eyes or kept you going when going didn't feel quite so easy. I guess you could have more than one, but that feels a bit disingenuous to me, like you're trying too hard to appear eclectic. I'm not going to tell you how to be inspired. I'm here to tell you how I was. It doesn't matter what it is, just like it doesn't really matter what god you worship in what way to anyone but you. These personal feelings isn't deep enough, beliefs isn't quite accurate, are as personal as it gets. So, while I'm going to get specific now, I think most of you, especially as I say the creatives, will be able to relate. I was 12 when License to Ill came out. I got the cassette from the Columbia Record and Tape Club. I'm not a hugely sentimental man, but I still have that tape, because it's some kind of holy relic now. To call me impressionable would force you to recalibrate the scale you use to measure impressionable people. I was a quiet nerd, the kid who was probably too old to play with toys, but nevertheless brought his Transformers to school. Weird Al and Dr. Demento were the primary staples of my musical diet, and I do have the pair of them to thank for pointing me toward comedy. 
But what the Beastie Boys did for me... Well, here's a good example. We did this little talent show in my 7th grade music class. My original plan was to do Weird Al's Like a Surgeon with another kid. We had this whole routine planned out. I'd pull out red scarves and we'd have fake blood. It was a whole thing. But then another kid suggested we do Paul Revere from License to Ill. And we did. And we got to the part where Ad-Rock said, I did it like this. I did it like that. I did it with the wiffle ball bat. And my friend did a little pelvic thrust to punctuate the this and that. Three things happened. The entire class lost their shit. We lost the talent show. And we got sent to the vice principal. I guess I should have stuck with Weird Al, but... I don't know. This was just cooler. It was infectious on its own, and it was a gateway drug to Run DMC, LL Cool J, the DC go-go scene. Hip-hop was entering the mainstream, but it was still a little... scary. It wasn't a race thing, at least not as far as I could tell. It was just strange and different. Not bad different, just, I don't know, different. The Beastie Boys, and later, though actually earlier, Run DMC would do the same thing. By mixing hip-hop with more familiar things, cheesy hair metal in this case, they showed us that, strange or not, it was music. I was 12. I didn't know what doing it with a wiffle ball bat entailed. I'm not even sure I do now. I also didn't know what jocking was, or a jammy, or brass monkey. I didn't know where White Castle was, or if I wanted to go there. I really know now that I don't. I barely knew party as a verb. It just... It wasn't just the new art form. It was, for want of a better word, my first glimpse into adulthood. Awful, deliberately amped up frat boy adulthood, granted. But that was exotic to a kid whose ideal weekend meant Friday at the skate station, a police academy movie on Saturday followed by prank calls that night. It's not that I wanted to drink or treat women poorly, it's that... I don't know what. I wanted to be cool, I guess. For better or worse, and I'm not sure what choice I'd make now, my life changed when I made the leap from Weird Al to the Beastie Boys. Obviously they aren't mutually exclusive, but at the time it sure seemed like they were. Ooh boy. Speaking of mutually exclusive, when Paul's Boutique dropped in the summer of 89, I was excited. But I also didn't want my friends to know about it. These were my shameful mullet ears when you could tell what day of the week it was from what Metallica t-shirt I was wearing. Crossover success notwithstanding, you couldn't like Metallica and the Beastie Boys. It just wasn't done. Not if you were a desperate weakling craving attention and approval like I was. I literally snuck or sneaked, whatever the correct verb is, I'm reading and I can't be bothered to look it up, to the record store to buy it, to the extent that I went in on my best friend's sister's day off. I took the long way through the woods, over a stream, in a pretty steep downhill grade. It's one of the first CDs I owned, and I even tore open the ridiculous giant long box that CDs came in back then and dropped it on the ground in those woods. Yeah, I was 14. I didn't give a hoot. So I brought the thing home, and frankly, I didn't know what I had. I liked it, but the hard guitars were gone. Listening through headphones was a singularly bizarre sensation. Snippets of music snuck up on me, squeezed from one ear to the other, then seemingly escaped out of the back of my head. What was this? I don't know. But I kept the CD carefully concealed, hidden, frankly, more securely than the rare scraps of 1989 porn I'd acquired. And much in the same way, I spent a good amount of quality time with it. I'd like to say it changed my life that summer. It didn't. It was, in the parlance of movies, a sleeper hit. As I got a little older and a little less ashamed of what people thought, okay, when Anthrax did bring the noise and put their metal seal of approval on rap, it was never far from my tape or CD player. And every time I listened, I heard something new. A snippet of a familiar sample or a lyric that suddenly made sense, and I now realize that this was my first taste of density in entertainment, things with layers. 
Things like the comics of Alan Moore or the TV show Arrested Development. Layers. Complexity. Coolness in an entirely different way. It didn't so much open my eyes in the same mind-blowing way. It hypnotized me. Crawled under my skin. And it still lives there almost 25 years later. You know the old what five albums would you bring to a desert island question? Sounds ridiculous and it sounds like a lie, but I swear. I'd bring one. You can have my other four so you can have nine. All I need is Paul's Boutique. That iTunes count wouldn't even be close to the number of times I put in that album. I would guess, no exaggerating, that I've listened start to finish 10,000 times. And that honestly is a conservative estimate. And you know, to this day, I'm still catching little references and things. I cannot overstate the impact, the importance this album has had in my life then, now, and at every point in between. It's a 15-track, or substantially more if you count B-Boy Booyah Bass as uh, separate tracks, anthem when I have something to celebrate. And it's a safe haven, a musical security blanket when I'm at my worst. It inspires me, and it makes me feel, I don't know, cool. You can listen if you want. You may enjoy it, but you're not going to get what I get out of it. I'm an atheist. That album is the closest thing to a religion I have, and that's the goddamn truth. And it's not just the music. I'm not even a big music guy. It's not just the impact it had on me at the time. It's the change in tone. That's the subtext. Once again, it informed my idea of what being a grown-up was. This next one is the first song on our new album. But then they really grew up. Check Your Head came out about a month before I graduated. Most people I knew were headed off to college. I was not. In terms of transitional period, it was one of the biggest in my life. And the transition that they made from they were still a bit hooligan-y, still a bit uh, gangster is maybe overstating it, but they did have a song about being a criminal on the run. Suddenly, this album's talking about it being a brand new morning and all sorts of positive themes. And for my entire life since then, I've been not obsessed, but fascinated by what happened, what changed, what made them go from people throwing eggs at people to people talking about turning your life around and, and positivity and stuff like that. I don't know. It happened in three years. It happened somewhere between 89 and 92. And I feel like, I feel like something, there's some kind of message in there, some kind of I don't know how you go from one to the other, but if I knew that, I think I would know something very important. I've read I've read books. I've read a couple of books. Uh, one about Paul's Boutique that talks about uh, the transition to Check Your Head, and another sort of about uh, different uh, hip-hop, uh, influential hip-hop albums. They both discuss this, and neither of them really hits the point. What happened? What What changed? But... In an odd way in my life, I'm still wondering how to move from mentally from Paul's Boutique to Check Your Head. Of course, the ironic thing, the thing that is the undercurrent to all of their albums, these first three on through 2011's uh, Hot Sauce Committee Part 2, is the sense of humor. That's the thing I always responded to the most. I haven't brought it up this whole time, but that's it. That's one of the things I love. The music can be dense and complex, or at the very least, just sort of catchy pop music. They experiment like crazy. They do instrumental stuff. They do old school hip hop. They do this sort of melding of the two. I mean, songs like uh, Gratitude or Sabotage, um, they're, what are they? I don't know. Are they rap? Are they rock? Who cares? They're Beastie Boys. 
but it's the humor. It's it's always the weird things that they say in their lyrics. It's always, I mean, the video for Sabotage is easily one of the, the best music videos ever made in terms of not only artistic, you know, quality, but just humor. It's It's fantastic. We all watched it and laughed our asses off, plus the song was great. That's what those guys did. And like I say, it's ironic that I'm doing this sort of tearful confession about them, about how seriously they impacted my life, when the thing I respond to most is the humor. Which, as a comedy writer, as a guy who wants a career in comedy, I guess it makes sense that that's what I responded to the most. Check Your Head and the next album, Ill Communication, are effectively the same album. I mean... They're different. There are different songs. It's not like they uh, they were phoning it in and they did the same album twice. It feels like, and I don't know if this is true or not, it feels like they recorded 50 songs and then split it into two albums. They're both great. But this is the point at which I loved, I, I continue to love the band. I obviously love more or less everything they've done. There's some instrumental stuff on a couple of the albums that I think is a little slow, kind of kind of brings down the momentum a bit. But those first three, License to Ill, Paul's Boutique, Check Your Head, are the ones that were there at crucial turning points in my life. Um, Ill Communication was great. Uh, Hello Nasty came in 98. That was, I mean, then you get into the thing that everyone has. That was a soundtrack of the summer of 98. We all, I'm sure, have music like that. Again, though, I'm not a big music guy. I like what I like. Most of what I like was formed in high school, and I basically continue listening to the same bands or bands that are sort of one step removed from them but hello nasty just sort of reminds me of that um they went a long time without an album and then 2004 they did to the five boroughs same thing um another sort of soundtrack of the summer um i may be the only person on the planet who quite enjoyed their uh instrumental album um which is completely drawing a blank. Uh, the song Off the Grid uh, off that album is one of my favorites. And I do the mix-up. The mix-up is what it's called. I'm, I'm off my written notes now, if you can't tell. I'm trying to be off the cuff, but again, hard when I'm not talking to anyone. I'm talking to a wall right now. Literally a wall. But I like that album. It was, it was I don't know what you call it. I guess they compared it to the meters, sort of instrumental Funk, rock, I think they call it post-punk. I don't know. I don't know. But the song Off the Grid is one of my all-time favorite songs ever, and it's just an instrumental. I think I'm going to play that in the in the second half of this. Um, and then they did Hot Sauce Committee, which album-wise was pretty weak. I think they had forgotten how to put together a collection of songs that cohesively fits together. But on the other hand, some of the individual songs in there are some of the best they ever did. There is the original single version of the song Too Many Rappers that they recorded with Nas, which um, Yauch has the line, I'll never die because death is the cousin to sleep, which I guess is a, a, a flip around of a, of a Nas lyric. But beyond that, uh, it's no surprise that on the, the final album they, uh, they replaced that whole verse. Because for some reason, you know, Yauch having cancer, they knew sort of the end was near. Him saying I'll never die was maybe in, in poor taste. Um, that single came out in 2009, and we had to wait two more years for the album because of his cancer. I was never really clear on that, and again, I'm, I'm being, a bit, uh, being a bit selfish, I know. 
But if the music was done, I didn't see the point in waiting. I understand they couldn't tour. But a new Beastie Boys album is like Christmas to me. It's like th this amazing thing that doesn't happen very often. There's, there's this great quote from Futurama. I'm just going to play it here. Wow, I love you guys. Back in the 20th century, I had all five of your albums. That was a thousand years ago. Now we got seven. And that's how I feel about it. I feel like, come on, guys. I want, I want more. It's, it's like a drug. It's like a, come on, I'm, I'm Jones in here. And that's what happened when Yauk died. I mean, as time goes on, I, I have different favorites. Uh, Yauk was my favorite for a long time. Oddly enough, Mike D right now is because on the last album, he just had some utterly ridiculous lyrics and he sold them and they're just funny and crazy. But like I say, it's the, the man is dead and I'm very, you know, very sorry about that. Like I said, that's what I'm supposed to say. Um, it's not that I'm callous. It's just, I don't know. That's how I see death. I see how it Im impacts me. I'm, I'm a selfish, selfish person. Um, but that also means the band is dead. And that means no more Christmas. You know what I mean? It means no more opening the box to see what happens next. I suspect that there's some material somewhere that when Ad-Rock and Mike D sort of get over their grief, start digging through tapes, we may see a little bit more. They t they said that uh, they were in the studio after uh, they, they recorded all the stuff for Hot Sauce Committee, so there's got to be some stuff out there somewhere. But if that ever makes it out, that's it. That's all there ever will be. And it makes me sad. There is, like I said, no other force in my life. Uh, when Douglas Adams died in, what was it, 2001, 2002, something like that, I was a little sad, but again, in that selfish way, dude didn't write any books for like 10 years. He was lazy. The lesson I got from his death was don't waste your time. That's when, that was like a kick to the head to me. That was like, stop saying you're going to write stuff. Stop pretending you're a writer and get off your ass and write, or you'll die with all those unwritten books. And I didn't want that. There, again, there are other things that I, I love that have informed my life. I mean, I mentioned Arrested Development earlier. That show taught me how to write comedy the way I do now. I, I write jokes, but I do the sort of clever underneath thing, the, the, the complexity, the meaning, you know, the layers of meaning. And this isn't me bragging. That's the way I attempt to write. I have so many little hidden things in sketches that I write that no one knows or cares about. And that's just the way I write. And it's the same way they did Arrested Development. But when that show got canceled, it was like, oh, that went away. And I mean, now it's coming back. But it's not the same. It's not the same. This is it. This is the only thing. This, when I listen to them, there's there's a few songs in particular that will always make me happy. Even when I'm in the throes of the chemical depression that I talked about when, uh, when Ed's been on the show a couple of times. For instance, if I have shuffle play on and intergalactic comes up, it is hard to not at least smile a little bit because because it's good music because it's fun music because it's upbeat and it's funny and it's catchy and it it just makes me happy um i saw them live once i saw them on the five boroughs tour i wanted to see them 
five times before and for various reasons I didn't I didn't make it but I'm so glad I got to see them at least once uh before before they went away um I saw them in DC and there's a there's a concert movie that came out called uh Awesome I fucking shot that which was done in New York and I believe that was shot the night before because I'm pretty sure they're saying we got to go we got to go to FedEx which is FedEx Field in in DC um I I say that because when I watch that concert movie I'm not seeing the exact concert I was at but I'm seeing the same set and so it's close enough that it brings you know brings back memories which is nice um I miss those guys I miss those guys in the way I miss those guys when they're 6 years between albums but I know that there's never going to be another proper album, and it makes me sad. That's really it. There's no point to this. There's no conclusion. I'm not leading you anywhere. I'm just saying sometimes there's a force in your life that helped make you who you are, and it goes away. And in sort of mythical stories, in sort of classic western storytelling there's that moment where you have a you have a father figure you have a mentor something that helps you and come on the beastie boys are not my father and they're not really mentors but they are a cornerstone of who i am they help make me who i am with with you know no sleep till brooklyn and girls they made me who i am i it's stupid, but I'm, you know, I'm a silly, goofy kind of guy. That's that's how it goes. But there's a, there's a point in those stories where you lose that mentor. You lose that, you know, that force, and it's gone. And you have to learn to carry on what they gave you in your own way. And the best modern example of that sort of thing is Star Wars, which, you know... Because it was so traditional three-act storytelling, traditional with all the um, Joseph Campbell hero's journey stuff, that it's really easy shorthand for this kind of thing. And Luke lost Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he had to go on without him. He had to use what he was taught and continue on without him. And that's effectively where I am now. Um, again, a little ridiculous, but those guys were kind of my Obi-Wan Kenobi. They kind of pulled me out of my life. They said, there's a bigger, stranger life out there. Come with us. We'll show you. And now we have to go. That's all I have. The um, The second half of the show is going to be me playing some music. Again, I know not all of you were into this, so if you want to jump off now, that's fine. All right. I've been rambling for long enough. I believe I have covered all the points in the usual way that I have, which is not even remotely linear. Now I'm going to talk about some of their music and play some of it. So thank you for your time, and as Ed Casey says, be well. All right, I got about 40 minutes of music here for you now. Um, about half of these are obscure, deep tracks, whatever you want to call them. The other half are from albums. Um, I'm not really trying to show off my collection uh, now that you can just download a torrent called All Beastie Boys Songs Ever. But some of these have particular meaning to me. Some of them just amuse me and so forth. First, I'm going to play uh, a couple of songs. Uh, these are from Paul's Boutique. Just before Paul's Boutique, these are demo versions of the song Car Thief, 
which is easily one of my favorite songs of theirs, probably in the top three or something. It's one of those songs that uh, just completely f- fucks your head with um, with headphones, just sneaks up on you, does all this weird sort of surroundy stuff, and it's just amazing. Um, these two demos are similar to what's on the album in terms of the Dust Brothers samples, but very, very different in terms of content. The first one is, as far as I know, the only rap song with a laugh track in it. Um, The second was so filthy that the blog that I downloaded it from at the time made the comment uh, specifically about Yauk, MCA. uh, Really, you kiss the Dalai Lama with that mouth? So here you go, two demos of Car Thief. Hello? Yo, this is this is about me. No. No. Some
the D's, but dirty geese done dirt cheap. Shot the fly a little while, I will check you later. My uncle always said that I will see your alligator. My mind is kind of rhyming and I think I ought to think. So I'm rocking on my rhymes and I'm having another drink. The lights are flashing, my mind is spinning. I feel like it is always the beginning of another rhyme. I'm rapping and singing, I'm rocking. I got a lot of life and the suckers, they be clocking. Then we move on to Paul's Boutique proper. I feel like I couldn't do this without playing a couple of songs off that. Uh, the first one is The Sounds of Science, which is track four. Um, there's a point in this song where... I, I can't keep explaining myself and apologizing for this. There's a point in this song that's sort of symbolic to me. It, it's a point where they go from a slow song, suddenly it sort of punches you in the gut and turns into something fast. And that part starts with him saying rope-a-dope, Ad-Rock saying rope-a-dope. And I interpret that to mean the the whole uh, boxing rope-a-dope thing where you, you pretend you're flailing and then suddenly you come out punching. That's what it feels like to me. And every now and then when I'm feeling a little down and I, I want a little kick, I listen to this and that uh, that second half is like, oh shit, here we go. So here we go. Over with the 
This other one is also from Paul's Boutique. Back in the day, there was this one track, track 15, which was called B-Boy Booyah Bass. And it was snippets of songs. It was little, probably, I'm guessing unfinished songs sort of woven together because they're all maybe a minute or two long each in this big medley, which they didn't like being compared to the Beatles, but really this album in a lot of ways was very much Abbey Road. Um, And part of that is because of this medley at the end. And one particular song sort of points the direction, sort of says, you know, Maybe these guys, particularly Yao, are starting to think about things, starting to think beyond throwing eggs at people and making songs about robbing convenience stores. And maybe, uh, I don't know, he says he was dropping a lot of acid and reading the Bible, but uh, this, this one still sort of speaks to me. So this is a year and a day.
This next one is off of Check Your Head. There's nothing particularly meaningful about this except that I just think it fucking rocks. This is the start of their whole melding of rap and rock. Not in the No Sleep Till Brooklyn way, not in the sort of Limp Biscuit way, just in a... It just feels right. It doesn't feel contrived. It doesn't feel like here's some guitars, here's some rapping. It just feels like... I mean, it, it sort of feels like he's singing, I guess, but there's definitely sort of a hip-hop element to this. And the last sort of... um the, the bit that carries you out with the organ just is just some fantastic music as far as I'm concerned. This next one is a, another um, demo, I suppose. This this came off the extras from the re-release of Ill Communication. This is uh, Mike D attempting to do a an acoustic version of Heart Attack Man and cracking up. And it's just one of those sort of, you know, outtakes where people are laughing and, and goofy shit's happening. And it amuses the hell out of me. Here's a sad little ditty that I just wrote about a good friend of mine. He's named a heart attack man. But he's a hack out there on the court. Speaking of hacks, he's down, he's down with my man, Bobby. 
Uh, it's a very sad song. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting silly now. But it's a little diddly about a good guy, though. Ain't no heart attack, man. And you know, he weighs in pretty hefty. My man's like to man hefty. How much he weigh? It's like the guy in the empty bag. <laughs> you know, Mr. C in the empty bag commercial, you know he's a bitch ass hack on the court. against the boards cause he is the whack whack cause he is heart attack the whack whack known to hack he comes from hacky sack cause he is the heart attack heart attack heart attack man Yet another demo here, This uh, the pre-release version of uh, Intergalactic, which was on Hello Nasty. This is almost entirely a different song, which I quite like, and I'm not sure why they never released. Um, it's got a lot of nerd stuff in it. I will never forgive them, as much as I love them. I will never forgive them for confusing Mr. Spock with Dr. Spock. That shit's just unacceptable, guys. Especially since they put uh, fucking sabotage in the Star Trek movie. The, nevertheless, this is this is still good stuff. Uh, I got it off Napster, and it is uh, labeled C9 Intergalactic. I don't know what the hell that means. I just call it the Intergalactic Demo. Scratch it, cut. I do doodle on a paper like my 
Johnny Rhyme on is my place of birth. What? what? According to, I think it was their greatest hits, whatever it was, the Sounds of Science collection, um, the story goes Mike D hit his head and Flintstone style suddenly thought he was a country singer and they released an entire album of country songs. Uh, the funny thing is they didn't release it. Uh, maybe it came out somewhere. Maybe it was buried. I don't know. But I found uh, I found it on the internet, the entire thing. There's a, I don't know, they're very short songs, but it's like 10 of them, and it's like, I don't know, 30 minutes long or something. Um, and this one just is utterly amazing. It is a quick country version of uh, Rapper's Delight by Country Mike. This one is not from an album. This they released as a single in 1999. This, more than anything, represents their, I don't know, their sort of optimistic outlook in the later part of their career. 9-11 sort of knocked them for a loop, and they suddenly got all political and all anti-Bush, and I don't, I don't want to get into all that. I do think it's interesting that they did basically an album of protest songs, regardless of, of what you where you fall politically. Uh, culturally, I think it's interesting that this sort of goofy rap group did a did a protest album just in the vein of like uh, Bob Dylan and so forth um but before that before things got a little ugly got a little dark they had this just really positive outlook really everything's going to be okay and this is one of those personal things i was in my mid 20s when this song came out and uh i i think i oh i just gotten engaged that's what it was and I had a good job and everything was looking up everything you know 
money and relationship and everything was good. And this song came out and it was just like, yeah, this is great. I've never been more ready in my entire life to do this right now. Never. So up to this moment, all right now, right here. So after that, as I say, 9-11 happened, To the Five Burrows happened. I like a lot of the songs on there. Uh, some of it gets a little too political for my tastes. 
didn't pick anything off of there. I'm going to jump to the mix-up, the uh, the instrumental album. This is Off the Grid, I mentioned before. There's nothing particularly special about this song. It just, it really, uh, I don't know. I put this on when I'm writing, and it's one of those songs that I can have on a loop over and over and over again. This is one of those songs I'm kind of scared to look at the play count for, because if it's accurate, it'll be in the thousands, and this album only came out in 2007. It's just the, that bit in the middle. I, I guess I really like songs that start slow and then kick in and get sort of hardcore. And this is one of those.
That brings us to their final album, uh, Hot Sauce Committee Part 2. There was no Part 1. Some kind of goofy joke there that I don't quite get. A um, couple of songs from that. First of all, this is uh, Lee Majors' Come Again. They released this in that two-year gap between announcing Hot Sauce Committee and actually releasing it. This was uh, a bonus on like one in every 10,000 records or something like that. I don't know. It ended up on the internet. And so I was listening to this song in 2009, and I was very familiar with it when it was on the album, by the time it was on the album. And this, to me, represents the final sort of, this is what they were pushing toward all along. This is the full melding of hardcore punk, which is how they started, and straight-up hip-hop. This is this represents everything they are in one song, and it fucking rocks besides that.
The other song that they released in that sort of interim period between announcing and releasing Hot Sauce Committee was this one. This was also on a record or something, I think. And the the version we had before the album came out had weird little gaps, had weird little censored bits. Um, but the, the version that finally made the album was fantastic. It's just, I don't know, I like the weird sort of sitar sample. I, it's got some particularly strange... Uh, leaps of of lyric i mean the the whole album did and like i say mike d was sort of my uh was sort of my go-to on that album yaksh was pretty serious uh adrock was sort of in the middle but mike d would say things like he had a he had a lyric on the album that was just mama 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 mike d that was it that was how he started that verse um he had another one uh i go wee you wee you like a fire engine like the guy it felt like he wasn't even trying but somehow he sells that stuff
Yo, the sound man almost lost his soup on that one. He's still contemplating it, though. Uh Uh-oh. Look out! I keep trying to introduce that last bit into my lexicon uh, that uh, almost lost his soup, and I haven't really managed to do that. This final song was from an EP they put out in 95, 96, something like that. Uh, It's just one of those quick little hardcore punk songs. It's two minutes. Um, But it it closes the album. It closes uh, Aglio e Olio. I think I'm saying that right. Um, And this just feels like a good last song. I mean, there's a lot of other albums they did that were great. But thinking back, um, let's see. Time to Get Ill was okay. Uh, uh, AWOL was okay. Uh, I think it was Namaste. Uh, All the final tracks are fine. But this one, more than anything, just feels like the end of an album. And I thought it was appropriate to, to end with this one. This is a pair of tracks you've actually heard on this show before. Um, These songs are off, I believe it's a 1988 uh, demo, demo album that Yauk did with some people who are sort of associated with the Beastie Boys, but not in them. Um, And and you can see the movement toward uh, instrumental stuff, toward picking up their instruments and doing their own stuff again. Um, The first one is called Home. And it's surprisingly heartfelt, given that we're still between Licensed Ale and Paul's Boutique. Still very much in the angry, vandal, fuck you phase. But it's still kind of, you know, not bad. And I've used this to open the show once or twice. Um, I used it this time. Uh, The second one is just called Instrumental One. Uh, It's from that same album. This I end every show with. And it's this album, uh, the second one actually, Instrumental One, 
was the song I was listening to at the time when I heard that Yauk had died. Um, that's not as coincidental as you think. I'm almost always listening to them because, uh, because I'm narrow like that and because they mean so much to me. But that's why I end every show with that. Thank mm-hmm. you.